Chapter Fourteen of Four Mothers at Chautauqua by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Puzzling questions, but they did not get on well. Eureka had been stirred to the depths of her nature by what had been revelations to her, and she felt as though she could not endure Burnham's apathy. But levity was worse. When he bent toward her and said whimsically. Did she really think I was perhaps planning to turn Mormon and marry seven wives? She answered coldly that she did not understand how any person with a heart could trifle over a subject so full of human misery as that, especially if he had any respect for women. It is probably fortunate that at that moment they were again interrupted by people from the intersecting street. Among them was Mrs. Dennis and Eureka's mother. Were you there, Eureka? Her mother asked, as though there could be but one place to have been. Did you ever hear anything like it? I feel as though I had been to the pit. Before any reply could be made, Mrs. Dennis interposed. Eureka, may I introduce my brother? Miss Harrison, Mr. Dennis, Mr. Roberts. Don't talk Mormonism to him, though, if you want to get quieted down in time for dinner. He is a missionary from Utah, and is ready to flash at the mention of the word Mormon. Eureka gave the stranger a swift comprehensive glance, and found him tall, pale, and uninteresting. But I don't believe, she added to this after a moment, that the Mormons like him a bit better than he does them. There was still a little time before dinner, and as Burnham was sincerely anxious to get to a better understanding with Eureka, he urged that they walk on down to the shore and get refreshed. She, being anxious for precisely the same thing, agreed at once. And then they quarreled outright, about the strangest thing. It was a very small boy, one of those who were often in Eureka's train, who began the mischief by wading out into altogether too deep water and getting stuck in the mud. Ordinarily he was a plucky little chap who knew how to get out of trouble as well as into it. But the water surging about him frightened him, so instead of making an effort to get out he stood still and yelled. It was the dinner hour in many cottages, and that part of the shore was almost deserted, so there was no one to depend on but the two who were not far from him. Eureka, who did not realize that the chief difficulty was mud, was very much alarmed. "'Do hurry!' she exclaimed. "'See how high the waves are! They will cover him before you get there. Oh, what if they should carry him away out? He would surely drown. Burnham, why are you so slow?' She whirled toward him as she spoke, and was amazed to see him standing there calmly, hands in his pockets. As she turned, he called out, "'Come on, Willie, that's a brave boy. Pull out the right foot, then the left. You can do it.' "'Burnham Roberts!' Eureka almost screamed the words. "'Aren't you going in after him?' "'I hadn't thought of it,' he said composedly. That mud doesn't seem to be exactly suited to low shoes or to my style of trousers. She made a gesture of disgust, the very immaculateness of his toilet down to his shining shoes and light-colored silk hose offended her. You can stand there and think of clothes, she said, when a little child is in danger. I think you are a coward as well as a dude, and I'm sorry to have to own you for an acquaintance. I shall go after him. 
She was suiting her action to her word, but with a quick spring he caught her arm. Eureka, you must not. You do not understand. Really, there is no danger. She tried to twitch herself from him, but he held her arm as though his hand were a vice, while he tried to explain what she would not heed. At that moment there came running from a boathouse in the distance a stalwart workman, who plunged his stout rubber boots into the thick black mud, fished out the boy with a single mighty stroke, and sent him yelling home. Eureka, freed from the vice, turned and walked rapidly down shore toward the avenue that led to the hotel. Burnham followed, uncertain whether to try to speak or to keep silence. Then came an experience that, if it had been carefully arranged beforehand for effect, could not have been better planned. A little girl had for some minutes been leisurely rowing toward them from across the lake. She looked very small to be managing a boat, but both Burnham and Eureka knew that she understood it. She was the eight-year-old daughter of a woman who washed for some of the guests at the hotel, and often rode over, quite by herself, for the clothes. "'I don't often trust the clean clothes to her,' the mother explained, "'because she is a frisky little thing like the rest of em. She's only eight, and might spatter em. But she can't do no mischief to dirty clothes, so I let her go for em. Oh, dear, no, I ain't a mite afraid to have her. She's rowed a boat over since she was two. It happened just as Eureka, who was almost breathless with fast walking and indignation, was turning to climb the hill. The frisky little thing had risen for a better view of something on the farther shore, her very familiarity with the boat making her careless, and, whether she slipped on the wet floor, or turned suddenly dizzy, or how it happened, no one knew, but she pitched backward into the water. She was quite a distance from the shore, but they both heard distinctly her wild frightened cry as she disappeared. Eureka stood still, transfixed with terror. The sturdy workman was nowhere to be seen, and there was no one else. Yes, a man was rushing down to the water's edge, throwing back coat and waistcoat as he ran. Another second, and he was in the water, swimming with long, masterly strokes, despite his impeding clothing. She had not known that Burnham Roberts could swim like that under any circumstances. She held her breath and watched. He was making for the very spot where the child had disappeared. No, there she was. He was almost by her side. Would he reach her before she sank again? Could he save her if he did? Boats there were in plenty all along the shore. Couldn't she take one and row out to them? She ran frantically down to the water's edge, only to find that the boats were securely locked. She screamed for help and waved her arms frantically, as though if people could not hear they could surely see. Very soon they did both. People were running from all directions, men, women, and children. Like wildfire had gone forth the word that something had happened, and all the time Burnham Roberts was swimming with powerful strokes toward the shore, holding by one hand in that vice-like grasp a little unconscious weight. There were literally hundreds to receive them, to work over the child, to assure her rescuer that she was coming round all right and to hurry him away in a carriage, in a dozen carriages, if he had accepted all that eagerly offered. Presently Eureka saw him whirled away, looking white and exhausted. Then she turned and walked up the hill alone. 
She was rid of her companion without the need for rapid walking. And she had called him a dude and a coward. She did not see him again until after breakfast on the following morning. Then she went straight toward where he stood on the south veranda, looking bored. All the morning he had been surrounded by a crowd of young people eager to make him into a hero. He had retranslated a dozen different stories of the rescue, and from out of the tissue of fantastic exaggerations picked the few simple facts. He was utterly tired of being a hero, and tempted to disclaim even the desire to save a human being from drowning. He had not appeared at the breakfast table, and his mother had reported that he did not rest well during the night and had a headache. But he assured her he was all right, and that the headache had nothing whatever to do with the exposure of the day before. No, indeed, he had not rested in the afternoon. He went to the ball game. She had never before known him to be so deeply interested in a game played by entire strangers. To all this Eureka had listened in silence and compunction. Had his headache to do with the unjust and unwomanly treatment he had received at her hands? She had been miserable about it ever since. She had wondered how it was possible that she could have used such language as she did. She told herself that it would be very hard indeed for him to forgive her. And all the time she had no doubt but that he would. She believed that he cared enough for her to forgive anything. As she decided this, she felt a little sting of compunction because she could not bring herself to care for him as he did for her. She swept the children who were about him and who ran toward her out of the way with a word. "'No, Charlie, not this morning. Some other time, Louise. Run away now, all of you. I want to talk to Mr. Roberts.' Then she turned to him. "'I can't tell you how glad I am to see you out as usual after your dreadful experience yesterday. Before I ask anything about it, I want to beg you to forgive the cruel and hateful words I said.' Of course you know that I didn't mean them, but I can't think how I could have spoken as I did, even under wild excitement. He was not diffusive in reply, although he said kindly that she must not let it trouble her. It was really of no consequence. Sane people did not take offense at what their friends said under the pressure of strong excitement. The words were all that they should be, but some way the manner was not Burnham's. When she tried to question him about the rescue, he broke in impetuously. "'Suppose we agree to forget all about that. I have been interviewed and interrogated ad nauseum. The most absurd and extravagant nonsense has been talked about it. You and I know that I simply swam out and picked up a little girl who had tumbled into the lake, and that is all there is of it.' Eureka was bent on one more question. I won't talk about it, Burnham, if it annoys you, though I still think there is a good deal of it, but I am dreadfully anxious to understand why it was that you were so utterly indifferent to the terror of that dear little Willie Powell, and then three minutes afterwards so utterly reckless of yourself for the sake of that little girl. Was it because one was a boy and the other a girl? He looked at her for a moment without speaking, but with a curious smile. When he spoke, his voice was coldly polite. "'I beg your pardon. Is it possible that you did not know that the little chap in the mud was only in danger of a whipping that he richly deserved for going in waiting at that forbidden point, 
and that the little girl would certainly have drowned if someone had not reached her speedily? I did not know, I mean, I did not think, Eureka began humbly and in some confusion, but he had turned from her with a cordial, Good morning, Mr. Dennis, to that gentleman who was ascending the veranda steps. Can you equal such a morning as this in Utah? To excel it would hardly be possible. Eureka felt herself dismissed. It was all very unlike Burnham. He had evidently been more hurt by her words than he cared to own, but she felt that she had never before liked him quite so well. She decided that she must be willing to be treated coldly for a little while. He really had abundant reason for so treating her, and she must continue to show him that she was both sorry and ashamed. Had she known that Burnham's unusual manner had nothing whatever to do with her, she would have been astonished beyond measure. The truth was that he had trials and perplexities that morning with which he felt she could not sympathize. Despite the advice of the physician and the entreaties of his mother, he had persisted, on the afternoon before, in getting out of the warm pack in which he had been placed, taking another cold bath, this time in private, and going off to the ball-game, in which he was, presumably, so interested that he spent the entire afternoon watching it. As a matter of fact, he gave extremely little attention to the game. He occupied one of the excellent seats he had secured, and sternly held the other against all intruders, until the game was near its close. Then he deserted both seats and walked about the grounds, to see if by any possible chance the one he sought could have escaped his eye. It had been in vain. Hazel was nowhere to be seen. In the evening, instead of taking himself early to bed, as would have become a youth who had been through such an adventure in the morning, or, failing in that, instead of going down to the parlors to enjoy the reception being held there, he went off by himself, none of his intimate friends knew whither, for the entire evening. Of course he knew that he went first, and with remarkable promptness, to the band concert, a function that he generally ignored. At its conclusion he had taken an apparently aimless walk about the grounds, returning late to the amphitheatre where what he called a stupid recital was in progress. His testimony with regard to the recital is not to be considered worth anything, because he gave his attention almost entirely to the people who went and came, or who walked very quietly around the great building. It had all been in vain. Hazel was not in the amphitheatre, had not been during the evening. Of that he felt certain. She was not among the promenaders outside, she did not sit on the little porch of the little cottage at the extreme end of Terrace Avenue, although the little cottage was quite dark, and she was presumably not within. He went home at last, disappointed and in doubt what effort to make next toward the accomplishment of his wish. The perplexity remained with him on this Sunday morning. How should he contrive to meet Hazel again? Why had she disappointed him the day before? Could it be because she did not care to follow his suggestion? How should he find out? How should he secure opportunities to teach her to care? It was questions like these that were repeating themselves in his brain all the while the young people were trying to make a hero of him, all the while that Eureka was trying to make him forgive her. As yet, no answer had been given to any of them. 
End of chapter 14